0: Part 1 of The Lady of the Shroud This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thomas Copeland. The Lady of the Shroud, Part 1, by Bram Stoker. From the Journal of Occultism, mid-January 1907. A strange story comes from the Adriatic. It appears that on the night of the 9th, as the Italia Steamship Company's vessel Victorine was passing a little before midnight the point known as the Spear of Ivan on the coast of the Blue Mountains, the attention of the captain, then on the bridge, was called by the lookout man to a tiny floating light close inshore. It is the custom of some south-going ships to run close to the Spear of Ivan in fine weather, as the water is deep and there is no settled current. Also, there are no outlying rocks. Indeed, some years ago, the local steamers had become accustomed to hug the shore here so closely that an intimation was sent from Lloyd's that any mischance under the circumstances would not be included in ordinary sea risks. Captain Miralani is one of those who insist on a wholesome distance from the promontory being kept, but on his attention having been called to the circumstance reported, he thought it well to investigate it, as it might be some case of personal distress. Accordingly, he had the engines slowed down and edged cautiously in towards shore. He was joined on the bridge by two of his officers, Signore Palmano and Destiglia, and by one passenger on board, Mr. Peter Caulfield, whose reports of spiritual phenomena in remote places are well known to the readers of the Journal of Occultism. The following account of the strange occurrence written by him and attested by the signatures of Captain Mirulani and the other gentlemen named has been sent to us. It was eleven minutes before twelve midnight on Saturday, the ninth day of January 1907, when I saw the strange sight off the headland known as the Spear of Ivan on the coast of the land of the Blue Mountains. It was a fine night, and I stood right on the bows of the ship where there was nothing to obstruct my view we were some distance from the spear of island passing from northern to southern point of the wide bay into which it projects captain mirilani the master is a very careful seaman and gives on his journeys a wide berth to the bay which is tabooed by Lloyds. but when he saw in the moonlight though far off a tiny white figure of a woman drifting on some strange current in a small boat on the prow of which rested a faint light to me it looked like a corpse candle he thought it might be some person in distress and began to cautiously edge towards it two of his officers were with him on the bridge signore falmano and Estilia. all these three as well as myself saw it the rest of the crew and passengers were below as we got close the true inwardness of it became apparent to me but the mariners did not seem to realize till the very last this is after all not strange for none of them had either knowledge or experience in occult matters whereas for over thirty years i have made a special study of this subject and have gone to and fro over the earth investigating to the nth all records of spiritual phenomena as i could see from their movements that the officers did not comprehend that which was so apparent to myself i took care not to enlighten them lest such should result in the changing of the vessel's course before i should be near enough to make accurate observation all turned out as i wished at least nearly so i shall be seen being in the bow i had of course a better view than from the bridge presently i made out that the boat which had all along seemed to be of a queer shape was none other than a coffin and that the woman standing up in it was clothed in a shroud Her back was towards us, and she had evidently not heard our approach. As we were creeping along slowly, the engines were almost noiseless, and there was hardly a ripple as our forefoot cut the dark water. Suddenly there was a wild cry from the bridge. Italians are certainly very excitable. Horse commands were given to the quartermaster at the wheel. The engine-room bell clanged. On the instant, as it seemed, the ship's head began to swing round to starboard. Full steam ahead was in action, and before one could understand, the apparition was fading in the distance. The last thing I saw was the flash of a white face with dark, burning eyes as the figure sank down into the coffin, just as mist or smoke disappears under a breeze. Book One. The Will of Roger Melton. The reading of The Will of Roger Melton and all that followed record made by ernest roger Halbert melton law student of the inner temple eldest son of ernest halberd melton eldest son of ernest melton elder brother of the said roger melton and his next of kin i consider it at least useful perhaps necessary to have a complete and accurate record of all pertaining to the will of my late granduncle roger melton to which end let me put down the various members of his family and explained some of their occupations and idiosyncrasies. My father, Ernest Halbert Melton, was the only son of Ernest Melton, eldest son of Sir Geoffrey Halbert Melton of Humcroft, in the shire of Salop, a justice of the peace, and at one time, sheriff. My great-grandfather, Sir Geoffrey, had inherited a small estate from his father, Roger Melton. In his time, by the way, the name was spelled Milton, but my great-great-grandfather changed the spelling to the latter form, as he was a practical man not given to sentiment, and feared lest he should in the public eye be confused with others belonging to the family of a radical person called Milton, who wrote poetry and was some sort of official in the time of Cromwell, whilst we are conservatives. The same practical spirit which originated the change in the spelling of the family name inclined him to go into business. So he became, whilst still young, a tanner and leather-dresser. He utilised for the purpose the ponds and streams, and also the oak woods on his estate, Toreby in Suffolk. He made a fine business, and accumulated a considerable fortune, with a part of which he purchased the Shropshire estate, which he entailed, and to which I am therefore heir apparent. Sir Geoffrey had, in addition to my grandfather, three sons and a daughter, the latter being born twenty years after her youngest brother. These sons were Geoffrey, who died without issue, having been killed in the Indian mutiny in Meerut in 1857, at which he took up a sword, though a civilian, to fight for his life. Roger, to whom I shall refer presently, and John, the latter, like Geoffrey, dying unmarried. Out of Sir Geoffrey's family of five, therefore, only three have to be considered. My grandfather, who had three children two of whom a son and a daughter died young leaving only my father roger and patience patience who was born in eighteen fifty eight married an irishman of the name of Sellinger, which was the usual way of pronouncing the name of saint leger or as they spelled it Saint ledger restored by later generations to the still older form he was a reckless daredevil sort of fellow then a captain of the lancers a man not without the quality of bravery he won the Victoria Cross at the Battle of Alawful in the Ashanti campaign, but I fear he lacked the seriousness and steadfast, strenuous purpose which my father always says marks the character of our own family. He ran through nearly all of his patrimony, never a very large one, and had it not been for my great aunt's little fortune, his days, had he lived, must have ended in comparative poverty. Comparative, not actual, for the Meltons who are persons of considerable pride, would not have tolerated a poverty-stricken branch of the family. We don't think much of that lot, any of us. Fortunately, my great-aunt Patience had only one child, and the premature decease of Captain saint leger as I prefer to call the name, did not allow of the possibility of her having more. She did not marry again, though my grandmother tried several times to arrange an alliance for her. She was, I am told, always a stiff, uppish person, who would not yield herself to the wisdom of her superiors. Her own child was a son who seemed to take his character rather from his father's family than from my own. He was a wastrel, and a rolling stone, always in scrapes at school and always wanting to do ridiculous things. My father, as head of the house and his own senior by eighteen years, tried often to admonish him, but his perversity of spirit and his truculence were such that he had to desist indeed i have heard my father say that he sometimes threatened his life a desperate character he was and almost devoid of reverence no one not even my father had any influence a good influence of course i mean over him except his mother who was of my family and also a woman who lived with her a sort of governess aunt he called her the way of it was this captain saint leger had a younger brother who made an improvident marriage with a Scotch girl when they were both very young? They had nothing to live on except what the reckless lancer gave them, for he had next to nothing himself, and she was bare, which is, I understand, the indelicate Scottish way of expressing lack of fortune. She was, however, I understand, of an old and somewhat good family, though broken in fortune, to use an expression which, however, could hardly be used precisely in regard to a family or a person never had fortune to be broken in. It was so far well that the McKelpies, that was the maiden name of Mrs. St. were reputable, so far as fighting was concerned. It would have been too humiliating to have allied to our family, even on the distaff side, a family both poor and of no account. Fighting alone does not make a family, I think. Soldiers are not everything, though they think they are. We have had in our family men who fought, but I never heard of any of them who fought because they wanted to. Mrs. St. Leger had a sister. Fortunately, there were only those two children in the family, or else they would all have had to be supported by the money of my family. Mr. St. Leger, who was only a subaltern, was killed at Mewand, and his wife was left a beggar. Fortunately, however, she died. Her sister spread a story that it was from the shock and grief before the child which he expected was born. This all happened when my cousin, or rather my father's cousin, my first cousin once removed, to be accurate, was still a very small child. His mother then sent for Miss McKelpie, her brother-in-law's sister-in-law, to come and live with her, which she did. Beggars can't be choosers, and she helped to bring up young saint I remember once my father giving me a sovereign for making a witty remark about her. I was quite a boy then, not more than 13, but our family were always clever from the very beginning of life, and father was telling me about the saint family. My family hadn't, of course, seen anything of them since Captain saint died, the circle to which we belong, don't care for poor relations, and was explaining where Miss McKelpie came in. She must have been a sort of nursery governess, for Mrs. Saint-Loger once told him that she helped her to educate the child then father i said if she helped to educate the child she ought to have been called miss mckelpy when my first cousin once removed rupert was twelve years old his mother died and he was in the dolefuls about it for more than a year miss mckelpy kept on living with him all the same Catch her quitting that sort don't go into the poorhouse when they can keep out my father being head of the family was of course one of the trustees and his uncle Roger, brother of the testator, another. The third was General McKelvey, a poverty-stricken Scotch laird, who had a lot of valueless land at Croome, in Rosshire. I remember Father gave me a new ten-pound note when I interrupted him whilst he was telling me of the incident of young St. Leger's improvidence by remarking that he was in error as to the land. From what I had heard of McKelvey's estate, it was productive of one thing, When he asked me what, I answered, mortgages. Father I knew had bought not long before a lot of them, at what a college friend of mine from Chicago used to call cutthroat price. When I remonstrated with my father for buying them at all, and so injuring the family estate which I was to inherit, he gave me an answer, the astuteness of which I have never forgotten. I did it so that I might keep my hand on the bold general, in case he should ever prove troublesome. And if the worst should ever come to the worst, Croom is a good country for grouse and stags. My father can see as far as most men. When my cousin, I shall call him cousin henceforth in this record, lest it might seem to an unkind person who might hereafter read it that I wished to taunt Rupert saint Lachet with his somewhat obscure position in reiterating his real distance in kinship with my family. When my cousin, Rupert St. Leger, wished to commit a certain idiotic act of financial folly, he approached my father on the subject, arriving at our estate, Humcroft, at an inconvenient time, without permission, not having had even the decent courtesy to say he was coming. I was then a little chap of six years old, but I could not help noticing his mean appearance. He was all dusty and disheveled. When my father saw him, I came into the study with him, he said in a horrified voice, good god he was further shocked when the boy brusquely acknowledged in reply to my father's greeting that he had travelled third class of course none of my family ever go anything but first class even the servants go second my father was really angry when he said he had walked up from the station a nice spectacle for my tenants and my tradesmen to see my my "'The kinsman of my house, house remote, trudging like a tramp on the road to my estate, "'why, my avenue is two miles and a perch. "'No wonder you are filthy and insolent. "'Rupert,' really, I cannot call him cousin here, "'was exceedingly impertinent to my father. "'I walked, sir, because I had no money, "'but I assure you I did not mean to be insolent. "'I simply came here because I wished "'to ask your advice and assistance, "'not because you were an important person.' and heaven long avenue as i know to my cost but simply because you are one of my trustees your trustees sirrah said my father interrupting him your trustees i beg your pardon sir he said quite quietly i meant the trustees of my dear mother's will and what may i ask you said father do you want in the way of advice from one of the trustees of your dear mother's will Rupert got very red and was going to say something rude, I knew it from his look, but he stopped and said in the same gentle way, I want your advice, sir, as to the best way of doing something which I wish to do, and, as I am under age, cannot do myself. It must be done through the trustees of my mother's will. And the assistance for which you wish, said father, putting his hand in his pocket, I know what that action means when I am talking to you. The assistance I want, said Rupert, getting redder than ever, is from my, the trusty also, to carry out what I want to do. And what may that be? asked my father. I would like, sir, to make over to my Aunt Janet. My father interrupted him by asking. He had evidently remembered my jest. Miss McSkelpy? Rupert got still redder, and I turned away. I didn't quite wish that he should see me laughing. He went on quietly, McHelpie, sir, Miss Janet McHelpie, my aunt, who has always been so kind to me, and whom my mother loved. I want to have made over to her the money which my dear mother left to me. Father doubtless wished to have the matter take a less serious turn, for Rupert's eyes were all shining with tears which had not fallen. So, after a little pause, he said, with indignation, which I knew was simulated, "'Have you forgotten your mother so soon, Rupert, "'that you wish to give away the very last gift "'which she bestowed on you?' "'Rupert was sitting, but he jumped up "'and stood opposite my father with his fist clenched. "'He was quite pale now, and his eyes looked so fierce "'that I thought he would do my father an injury. "'He spoke in a voice which did not seem like his own. "'It was so strong and deep. "'Sir,' he roared out, "'I suppose if I was a writer, which, thank God, I am not, "'I have no need to follow a menial occupation. "'I would call it thundered. "'Thundered is a longer word than roared, "'and would, of course, help to gain the penny "'which the writer gets for a line. "'Father got pale, too, and stood quite still. "'Rupert looked at him steadily for quite half a minute. "'It seemed longer at the time, "'and suddenly smiled and said as he sat down again, "'Sorry, but, of course, you don't understand such things.' "'Then he went on talking before father had time to say a word. "'Let us get back to business. "'As you do not seem to follow me, let me explain that it is because I do not forget that I wish to do this. "'I remember my dear mother's wish to make Aunt Janet happy, and would like to do as she did.' "'Aunt Janet?' said father, very properly sneering at his ignorance. "'She is not your aunt.' Why, even her sister, who was married to your uncle, was only your aunt by courtesy. I could not help feeling that Rupert meant to be rude to my father, though his words were quite polite. If I had been as much bigger than him as he was than me, I should have flown at him. But he was a very big boy for his age. I am myself rather thin. Mother says thinness is an appanage of birth. My aunt Janet, sir, is an aunt by love. Courtesy is a small word to use in connection with such devotion as she has given to us. But I needn't trouble you with such things, sir. I take it that my relations on the side of my own house do not affect you. I am a sent ledger. Father looked quite taken aback. He sat quite still before he spoke. Well, Mr. St. Leger, I shall think over the matter for a while and shall presently let you know my decision. "'In the meantime, would you like something to eat? "'I take it that you must have started very early. "'You have not had any breakfast?' "'Rupert smiled quite genially. "'That is true, sir. "'I haven't broken bread since dinner last night, "'and I am ravenously hungry.' "'Father rang the bell and told the footman who answered it "'to send the housekeeper. "'When she came, Father said to her, "'Mrs. Martindale, take this boy to your room "'and give him some breakfast.' rupert stood very still for some seconds his face had got red again after his paleness then he bowed to my father and followed mrs martindale who had moved to the door nearly an hour afterwards my father sent a servant to tell him to come to the study my mother was there too and i had gone back with her the man came back and said mrs martindale sir wishes to know with her respectful service if she may have a word with you before father could reply mother told him to bring her the housekeeper could not have been far off that kind are generally near a keyhole for she came at once when she came in she stood at the door curtsying and looking pale father said well i thought sir and ma'am that i had better come and tell you about master Saint ledger i would have come at once but i feared to disturb you well father had a stern way with servants When I'm head of the family, I'll tread them under my feet. That's the way to get real devotion from servants. If you please, sir. I took the young gentleman into my room and ordered a nice breakfast for him, for I could see he was half-famished, a growing boy like him and so tall. Presently it came along. It was a good breakfast, too. The very smell of it made even me hungry. There were eggs and frizzled ham and grilled kidneys and coffee and buttered toast and bloater paste. That will do as to the menu, said Mother. Go on. When it was all ready and the maid had gone, I put a chair to the table and said, Now, sir, your breakfast is ready. He stood up and said, Thank you, madam. You are very kind. And he bowed to me quite nicely, just as if I was a lady ma'am. Go on, said Mother then sir he held out his hand and said "Goodbye, and thank you and he took up his cap but aren't you going to have any breakfast sir i says no thank you madam he said i couldn't eat here in this house i mean well ma'am he looked so lonely that i felt my heart melting and i ventured to ask him if there was any mortal thing i could do for him do tell me dear i ventured to say i am an old woman AND YOU, SIR, ARE ONLY A BOY, THOUGH IT'S A FINE MAN YOU WILL BE, LIKE YOUR DEAR SPLENDID FATHER, WHICH I REMEMBER SO WELL, AND GENTLE LIKE YOUR POOR DEAR MOTHER. YOU'RE A DEAR, HE SAYS, AND WITH THAT I TOOK UP HIS HAND AND KISSED IT, FOR I REMEMBER HIS POOR DEAR MOTHER SO WELL, THAT WAS DEAD ONLY A YEAR. WELL, WITH THAT HE TURNED HIS HEAD AWAY, AND WHEN I TOOK HIM BY THE SHOULDERS AND TURNED HIM ROUND, HE IS ONLY A YOUNG BOY, MA'AM, FOR ALL HE IS SO BIG. I saw that tears were rolling down his cheeks. With that, I laid his head on my breast. I've had children of my own, ma'am, as you know, though they're all gone. He came willing enough and sobbed for a little bit. Then he straightened himself up, and I stood respectfully beside him. Tell Mr. Melton, he said, that I shall not trouble him about the trustee business. But won't you tell him yourself, sir, when you see him, I says? I shall not see him again, he says. I am going back now. Well, ma'am, I knew he'd had no breakfast, though he was hungry, and that he would walk as he come, so I ventured to say, if you won't take it a liberty, sir, may I do anything to make your going easier? Have you sufficient money, sir? If not, may I give you or lend you some? I shall be very proud if you will allow me to. Yes, he says, quite hearty. If you will, you might lend me a shilling, as I have no money. I shall not forget it. He said, as he took the coin, I shall return the amount, though I never can the kindness. I shall keep the coin. He took the shilling, sir. He wouldn't take any more. And then he said goodbye. At the door he turned and walked back to me, and put his arms round me like a real boy does, and gave me a hug. And says he, thank you a thousand times, Mrs. Martindale, for your goodness to me, for your sympathy, and for the way you have spoken to my father and mother. You have seen me cry, Mrs. Martindale, he said. I don't often cry. The last time was when I came back to the lonely house after my poor dear was laid to rest. But you nor any other shall ever see a tear of mine again. And with that, he straightened out his big back and held up his fine proud head and walked out. I saw him from the window striding down the avenue. My, but he is a proud boy, sir, an honor to your family, sir, say I respectfully. And there the proud child has gone away hungry, and he won't, I know, ever use that shilling to buy food. Father was not going to have that, you know, so he said to her, He does not belong to my family, I would have you know. True, he is allied to us through the female side, but we do not count him or his in my family. He turned away and began to read a book. It was a decided snub to her. But Mother had a word to say before Mrs. Martindale was done with. Mother has a pride of her own, and doesn't book insolence from inferiors, and the housekeeper's conduct seemed to be rather presuming. Mother, of course, isn't quite our class, though her folk are quite worthy and enormously rich. She is one of the Dalmallingtons, the salt people, one of whom got a peerage when the Conservatives went out. She said to the housekeeper, I think, Mrs. Martindale, that I shall not require your services after this day month, and as I don't keep servants in my employment when I dismiss them, here is your month's wages due on the twenty-fifth of this month, and another month in you of notice. Sign this receipt. She was writing a receipt as she spoke. The other signed it without a word and handed it to her. She seemed quite flabbergasted. Mother got up and sailed, that is the way that Mother moves when she is in a wax, out of the room. Lest I should forget it, let me say here that the dismissed housekeeper was engaged the very next day by the Countess of Sellep. I may say in explanation that the Earl of Sellep, K.G., who is Lord Lieutenant of the County, is jealous of Father's position and his growing influence. Father is going to contest the next election on the conservative side and is sure to be made a baronet before long. Letter from Major General Sir Colin Alexander McKelpie, V.C., KCB, of Croom, Ross, N.B., to Rupert St. Ledger, Esquire, 14, Newland Park, Dulwich, London, Southeast. July fourth, 1892 My dear godson, I am truly sorry I am unable to agree with your request that I should acquiesce in your desire to transfer to Miss Janet McKelpie the property bequeathed to you by your mother, of which property I am a trustee. Let me say at once that, had it been possible for me to do so, I should have held it a privilege to further such a wish, not because the beneficiary whom you would create is a near kinswoman of my own. That, in truth, is my real difficulty i have undertaken a trust made by an honorable lady on behalf of her only son son of a man of stainless honor and a dear friend of my own and whose son has a rich heritage of honor from both parents and who will i am sure like to look back on his whole life as worthy of his parents and of those whom his parents trusted you will see i am sure that whatsoever i might grant regarding anyone else my hands are tied in this matter And now let me say, my dear boy, that your letter has given me the most intense pleasure. It is an unspeakable delight to me to find in the son of your father a man whom I loved, and a boy whom I love, the same generosity of spirit which endeared your father to all his comrades, old as well as young. Come what may, I shall always be proud of you, and if the sword of an old soldier, it is all I have, can ever serve you in any way, it and its master's life are, and shall be, whilst life remains to him, yours. It grieves me to think that Janet cannot, through my act, be given that ease and tranquility of spirit which come from competence. But, my dear Rupert, you will be of full age in seven years more. Then, if you are in the same mind, and I am sure you will not change, you, being your own master, can do freely as you will. In the meantime, to secure so far as I can, my dear Janet, against any malign stroke of fortune, I have given orders to my factor to remit semi-annually to Janet one full half of such income as may be derived in any form from my estate of croon. It is, I am sorry to say, heavily mortgaged, but of such as is, or may be, free from such charge as the mortgage entails, something, at least, will I trust remain to her. And, my dear boy, I can frankly say that it is to me a real pleasure that you and I can be linked in one more bond in this association of purpose. I have always held you in my heart as though you were my own son. Let me tell you now that you have acted as I should have liked son of my own, had I been blessed with one to have acted. God bless you, my dear. Yours ever, Colin Alexander McKelpie. Letter from Roger Melton of Openshaw Grange to Rupert St. Ledger, Esquire, 14, Newland Park, Dulwich, London, southeast July 1, 1892 My dear nephew, Your letter of the thirtieth ultimately received. Have carefully considered matter stated, and have come to the conclusion that my duty as a trustee would not allow me to give full consent as you wish. Let me explain. The testator, in making her will, intended that such fortune as she had at disposal should be used to supply to you her son such benefits as his annual product should procure. To this end, and to provide against wastefulness or foolishness on your part, or indeed against any generosity, howsoever worthy, which might impoverish you and so defeat her benevolent intentions regarding your education, comfort, and future good, she did not place the estate directly in your hands leaving you to do as you might feel inclined about it but on the contrary she entrusted the corpus of it in the hands of men whom she believed should be resolute enough and strong enough to carry out her intent even against any cajolements or pressure which might be employed to the contrary it being her intention then that such trustees as she appointed would use for your benefit the interest accruing annually from the capital command and that only, as specifically directed in the will, so that, on your arriving at full age, the capital entrusted to us should be handed over to you intact, I find a hard and fast duty in the matter of adhering exactly to the directions given. I have no doubt that my co-trustees regard the matter in exactly the same light. Under the circumstances, therefore, we, the trustees, have not only a single and united duty towards you as the object of the testator's wishes, but towards each other as regards the manner of the carrying out of that duty. I take it, therefore, that it would not be consonant with the spirit of the trust, or of our own ideas in accepting it, that any of us should take a course pleasant to himself, which would or might involve a stern opposition on the part of other of the co-trustees. We have each of us to do the unpleasant part of this duty without fear or favor. You understand, of course, that the time which must elapse before you come into absolute possession of your estate is a limited one. As by the terms of the will we are to hand over our trust when you have reached the age of twenty-one, there are only seven years to expire. But till then, though I should gladly meet your wishes if I could, I must adhere to the duty which I have undertaken. At the expiration of that period, you will be quite free to divest yourself of your estate without protest or comment of any man. Having now expressed as clearly as I can the limitations by which I am bound with regard to the corpus of your estate, let me say that in any other way which is in my power or discretion, I shall be most happy to see your wishes carried out so far as rests with me. Indeed, I shall undertake to use what influence I may possess with my co-trustees to induce them to take a similar view of your wishes. In my own thinking, you are quite free to use your own property in your own way. But as, until you shall have attained your majority, you have only life user in your mother's bequest. you are only at liberty to deal with the annual increment. On our part as trustees, we have a first charge on that increment to be used for purposes of your maintenance, clothes, and education as to what may remain over each half year you will be free to deal with it as you choose on receiving from you a written authorization to your trustees if you desire the whole sum or any part of it to be paid over to miss janet McKelpie, i shall see that it is effected believe me that our duty is to protect the corpus of the estate and to this end we may not act on any instruction to imperil it but there our warranty stops We can deal during our trusteeship with the corpus only. Further, lest there should arise any error on your part, we can deal with any general instruction for only so long as it may remain unrevoked. You are, and must be, free to alter your instructions or authorizations at any time. Thus, your latest document must be used for our guidance. As to the general principle involved in your wish, I make no comment you are at liberty to deal with your own how you will i quite understand that your impulse is a generous one and i fully believe that it is in consonance with what had always been the wishes of my sister had she been happily alive and had to give judgment of your intent i am convinced that she would have approved therefore my dear nephew should you so wish i shall be happy for her sake as well as your own to pay over on your account as a confidential matter between you and me, but from my own pocket, a sum equal to that which you wish transferred to Miss Janet McKelpie. On hearing from you, I shall know how to act in the matter. With all good wishes, believe me to be your affectionate uncle, Roger Melton. To Rupert St. Ledger, Esquire. Letter from Rupert St. Ledger to Roger Melton, July fifth, 1892. My dear uncle, thank you heartily for your kind letter i quite understand and now see that i should not have asked you as a trustee such a thing i see your duty clearly and agree with your view of it i enclose a letter directed to my trustees asking them to pay over annually till further direction to miss janet McKelpie at this address whatever sum may remain over from the interest of my mother's bequest after deduction of such expenses as you may deem fit for my maintenance, clothing, and education, together with a sum of one pound sterling per month, which was the amount my dear mother always gave me for my personal use. Pocket money, she called it. With regard to your most kind and generous offer to give to my dear Aunt Janet the sum which I would have given myself, had such been in my power, I thank you most truly and sincerely, both for my dear Aunt, to whom of course i shall not mention the matter unless you specially authorize me and myself but indeed i think it will be better not to offer it aunt janet is very proud and would not accept any benefit with me of course it is different for since i was a wee child she has been like another mother to me and i love her very much since my mother died and she of course was all in all to me there has been no other and in such love as ours pride has no place Thank you again, dear uncle, and God bless you, your loving nephew, Rupert St. Ledger. Ernest Roger Halbert Melton's Record continued. And now, Ray the remaining one of Sir Geoffrey's children, Roger. He was the third child and third son, the only daughter Patience, having been born twenty years after the last of the four sons. Concerning Roger, I shall put down all I have heard of him from my father and grandfather. From my grand-aunt I heard nothing. I was a very small kid when she died, but I remember seeing her, but only once. A very tall, handsome woman, of a little over thirty, with very dark hair and light-colored eyes. I think they were either grey or blue, but I can't remember which. She looked very proud and haughty, but I am bound to say that she was very nice to me. I remember feeling very jealous of Rupert because his mother looked so distinguished. Rupert was eight years older than me, and I was afraid he would beat me if I said anything he did not like. So I was silent except when I forgot to be, and Rupert said very unkindly, and I think very unfairly, that I was a sulky little beast. I haven't forgot that, and I don't mean to. However, it doesn't matter much what he said or thought. There he is, if he is at all, where no one can find him, with no money or nothing, for what little he had, he settled when he came of age, on the McSkelpy. He wanted to give it to her when his mother died, but father, who was a trustee, refused, and Uncle Roger, as I call him, who was another, thought the trustees had no power to allow Rupert to throw away his matrimony, as I called it, making a joke to father when he called it patrimony old sir colin mcskelpy who is the third said he couldn't take any part in such a permission as the mcskelpy was his niece he is a rude old man that i remember when not remembering his relationship i spoke of the mcskelpy he caught me a clip on the ear that sent me across the room his scotch is very broad i can hear him say a some attempt at even Southern manners, and dinner miscal ye betters, ye young puddock, or a ring your snoot. And father was, I could see, very much offended, but he didn't say anything. He remembered, I think, that the general is a VC man, and was fond of fighting duels. But to show that the fault was not his, he wrung my ear, and the same ear, too. I suppose he thought that was justice but it's only right to say that he made up for it afterwards. When the general had gone, he gave me a five-pound note. I don't think Uncle Roger was very pleased with the way Rupert behaved about the legacy, for I don't think he ever saw him from that day to this. Perhaps, of course, it was because Rupert ran away shortly afterwards. But I shall tell about that when I come to him. After all, why should my uncle bother about him? He is not a melton at all. And I am to be head of the house, of course, when the Lord thinks right to take father to himself. Uncle Roger has tons of money, and he never married. So if he wants to leave it in the right direction, he needn't have any trouble. He made his money in what he calls the eastern trade. This, so far as I can gather, takes in the Levant and all east of it. I know he has what they call in trade houses in all sorts of places, Turkey and Greece, and all round them, Morocco, Egypt, and southern Russia, and the Holy Land, then on to Persia, India, and all round it, the Khersonese, China, Japan, and the Pacific Islands. It is not to be expected that we landowners can know much about trade, but my uncle covers, or alas, I must say covered, a lot of ground, I can tell you. Uncle Roger was a very grim sort of man, and only that I was brought up to try and be kind to him, I shouldn't ever have dared to speak to him. But when, as a child, father and mother, especially mother, forced me to go and see him and be affectionate to him, he was never even civil to me, that I can remember, grumpy old bear. But then he never saw Rupert at all, so that I take it Master R. is out of the running altogether for testamentary honours. The last time I saw him myself, he was distinctly rude. He treated me as a boy, though I was getting on for eighteen years of age. I came into his office without knocking, and without looking up from his desk where he was writing, he said, Get out! Why do you venture to disturb me when I'm busy? Get out and be damned to you! I waited where I was, ready to transfix him with my eye when he should look up, for I cannot forget that when my father dies, I shall be head of my house. But when he did, there was no transfixing possible. He said quite coolly, oh it's you is it i thought it was one of my office boys sit down if you want to see me and wait till i am ready so i sat down and waited father always said that i should try to conciliate and please my uncle father is a very shrewd man and uncle roger is a very rich one but i don't think uncle r is as shrewd as he thinks he is he sometimes makes awful mistakes in business for instance some years ago he bought an enormous estate on the Adriatic, in the country they call the land of Blue Mountains. At least he says he bought it. He told father so in confidence. But he didn't show any title deeds, and I'm greatly afraid he was had. A bad job for me that he was, for father believes he paid an enormous sum for it, and as I am his natural heir, it reduces his available estate to so much less. And now, about Rupert. As i have said he ran away when he was about 14 and we did not hear about him for years when we or rather my father did hear of him it was no good that he heard he had gone as a cabin boy on a sailing ship round the horn then he joined an exploring party through the center of patagonia and then another up in alaska and a third to the aleutian islands after that He went through Central America and then to Western Africa, the Pacific Islands, India, and a lot of places. We all know the wisdom of the adage that a rolling stone gathers no moss, and certainly if there be any value in moss, Cousin Rupert will die a poor man. Indeed, nothing will stand his idiotic, boastful wastefulness. Look at the way in which, when he came of age, he made over all his mother's little fortune to the McSkelby. I am sure that though Uncle Roger made no comment to my father, who as head of our house should, of course, have been informed, he was not pleased. My mother, who has a good fortune in her own right, and has had the sense to keep it in her own control, as I am to inherit it, and it is not in the entail, I am therefore quite impartial, I can approve of her spirited conduct in the matter. We never did think much of Rupert anyhow, But now, since he is in the way to become a pauper, and therefore a dangerous nuisance, we look on him as quite an outsider. We know what he really is. For my own part, I loathe and despise him. Just now, we are irritated with him, for we are all kept on tenterhooks regarding my dear Uncle Roger's will. For Mr. Trent, the attorney who regulated my dear Uncle's affairs, and his possession of the will says it is necessary to know where every possible beneficiary is to be found before making the will public so we all have to wait it is especially hard on me who am the natural heir it is very thoughtless indeed of rupert to keep away like that i wrote to old mcskelpy about it but he didn't seem to understand or to be at all anxious he is not the heir he said that probably rupert sent ledger he too keeps to the old spelling. Did not know of his uncle's death, or he would have taken steps to relieve our anxiety. Our anxiety, forsooth. We are not anxious, we only wish to know. And if we, and especially me, who have all the annoyance of thinking of the detestable and unfair death duties, are anxious, we should be so. Well, anyhow, he'll get a properly bitter disappointment and set down when he does turn up and discovers that he is a pauper without hope. Today we, father and I, had letters from Mr. Trent, telling us that the whereabouts of Mr. Rupert St. Ledger had been discovered, and that a letter disclosing the fact of poor Uncle Roger's death had been sent to him. He was at Titicata when last heard of. So goodness only knows when he may get the letter, which, quote, asks him to come home at once, but only gives to him such information about the will as has already been given to every member of the testator's family, unquote. And that is nil. I dare say we shall be kept waiting for months before we get hold of the estate, which is ours. It is too bad. Letter from Edward Bingham Trent to Ernest Roger Halbert Melton 176 Lincoln's Inn Fields, December 28, 1906 Dear Sir, I am glad to be able to inform you that I have just heard by letter from Mr. Rupert St. Leger that he intended leaving Rio de Janeiro by the S.S. Amazon of the Royal Mail Company on December 15th. He further stated that he would cable just before leaving Rio de Janeiro to say on what day the ship was expected to arrive in London. As all the others possibly interested in the will of the late Roger Melton, and whose names are given to me in his instructions regarding the reading of the will, have been advised, and have expressed their intention of being present at that event, on being apprised of the time and place, I now beg to inform you that by cable message received, the date scheduled for arrival at the Port of London was January 1st, approximately. I therefore beg to notify you, subject to postponement due to the non-arrival of the Amazon, the reading of the will of the late Roger Melton Esquire will take place in my office on Thursday, January 3rd, approximately, at 11 o'clock a.m. I have the honour to be, Sir, yours faithfully, Edward Bingham Trent, to Ernest Roger Halbert Melton Esquire Humcroft Sallow. Cable. Rupert St. Ledger to Edward Bingham Trent. Amazon arrives London, January 1st. St. Ledger. Telegram for Lloyd's. Rupert St. Ledger to Edward Bingham Trent. The Lizard. December 31st. Amazon arrives London tomorrow morning. All well. Ledger. Telegram. Edward Bingham Trent to Ernest Roger Halbert Melton. Rupert St. Ledger arrives. Reading Will Takes Places Arranged, Trent End of Part 1, recording by Thomas Copeland